Good morning. My name is Brian Enos, and I'll be reading today's scripture for us. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles or in your bulletin. It's 1 Samuel 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrisons of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness." Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul or Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. 
I'm sure you've been uh, made aware of the fact that the Queen of England has passed away. You heard enough about that yet? And there is a new king, King Charles III. And when I think about that, I have fond memories of the lengthy conversation I had with his son that ended in an embrace. Maybe I should tell you that story. I was in the library during revision week. I was at St. Andrews. Laura and I were there for three years. I was a grad student. And revision week is the week before final exams. The rest of the semester, most of the undergrads were not in the library. But in the British system, almost everything was dependent upon that final exam. So the library was packed. So as the graduate students, we tried to avoid the library as much as we could during revision week because we knew it was just packed. But there was a resource that I needed, and I was in the belly of the library trying to find this book. I was literally on my hands and knees when all of a sudden I saw two very fancy shoes standing right next to me. And I looked up and it was Prince William. He goes, excuse me, mate. Very friendly, cordial thing to say. So I stood up and said, I'm sorry. And he goes, American? And I said, and I, no, you don't say Rockford, really, do you, to somebody? Who, I mean, I just say Chicago, so forgive that, right? But it's close enough. I said, Chicago. He goes, pizza? <laughs> Very different accent than mine. And I just, I just laughed. Now, the tricky part is, the, this was an old library, and the stacks were pretty close together. So if I'm standing, looking at down the aisle, both my shoulders are practically touching and he needed to get around me. So I stood back as much as I could, we're kind of twisting like this, sucked in everything I could suck in, and we had an intimate embrace right there <laughs> as he skirted beyond me, which he added, cheers. That was our intimate conversation and very passionate embrace. <laughs> At that point he was third in line. Now he is the next king of England. I'm sure he remembers me. <laughs> Somehow I must be in his will somewhere. But I am quite honored that the future king of England knows about Chicago-style pizza. But it's interesting to see for the first time in 70 years, right? I mean, Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth was queen before I was even born. So most of us even if we've lived longer than she served, may not remember exactly the events surrounding when her father passed away and she became the queen. But all the formality and the ceremony and the rights and privileges and responsibility of a king have been interesting to watch over these last few days. The idea of king might be foreign to us as Americans. There's a long history and origin of how we think about governance and royalty. So certainly as an American citizen, you and I are strangers to that world. But as Christians, king is a very normal concept. And we're seeing in this section of the Old Testament where God moves away from these temporary leaders, these judges that step up and serve for a season of time, to establishing the office of king that he fully intended to extend, even if no rightful king was yet to be found, he fully extended to be part 
in parcel for what it means for his people to be ruled. And we're seeing how Saul, the first king, inadequately fulfills that role. And we have much to learn from even this text as we see King Saul serving under the true, ultimate, uppercase king, God, and his honoring or dishonoring his commandments. Let me pray for us as we look at 1 Samuel 13 and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you reach out to us, even through these passages with lots of Beths and Gilgals and Gibeah words, examples and stories of people long ago. You want us to see how the subject matter of these verses is intended to direct us to know you, to serve you, to worship you, and even, and especially in this text, to obey you. So even though we, Father, may not know a king of our temporary human kingdom, may we know about the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ as we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a lot in that text, uh, a, a lot of words. I'm always thankful, by the way, for you, our brothers and sisters, who will come up and read 22 verses of English translated from Hebrew with a bunch of Beths and Michmash and Gibeahs. Let me just summarize the story for us so we can get the gist of it, because it's really in that middle section that I want to hone in. There's a conflict between Israel and the Philistines that goes beyond this chapter. So be aware, this chapter is telling you of an event that happens, but the conflict between Israel and the Philistines has yet to be explained. Like, in fact, it kind of sets up chapter 14. Notice where 13 ended, if you were tracking that long as Julie read. Like, the Philistines even set it up so that the Israelites could not make their own weapons. Like, smart move. It wasn't just economically in their advantage that the Israelites had to go to the Philistines if they were going to plow their fields or make anything out of metal. It became a military advantage because they could just simply not do any of that work for them the moment there was some kind of political conflict. So the end of the text today ends with this, how in the world will the small people of Israel with no weapons engage with this massive Philistine army? Well, that's for next week. But this is a key moment in the life of Saul and God's people, and we don't want to miss that. A conflict arises between Israel and the Philistines and Saul and his son Jonathan. Interestingly, Jonathan plays a major role in the biblical story and is given no introduction. He's completely left undefined. The, the, the focus of this text is not that we know every detail now, but it wants us to think about what Saul does. War was coming, the trumpet sound was the call to war. All of God's people were to gather with the king. The Philistines prepare for war themselves and do so in a mighty fashion. Verse 5 says the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. Those are, those are like tanks in the ancient world. 30,000 chariots. What kind of a field could even hold that many chariots? 6,000 horsemen and troops, literally, verse 5 near the middle says, like 
The sand on the seashore in multitude. Like, you couldn't even count them all. That would make any army panic. Imagine one that doesn't have any weapons. It's basically set up for a slaughter. The text wants you to feel that before it moves on. It wants you to see, listen, any of us, right? Greg, what a beautiful setup Greg gave talking about how we can read the story wrong. We, we can read it with a judging attitude rather than a listening attitude, right? When the stories of the Bible, the failures of God's people, is not so that we can say, I would have never done that or they shouldn't have done that, but to see it as a mirror for us. What would you do? Well, you're mustering your own little army with no weapons. You got your little kids holding on to your legs, and you know that all those chariots and horses and soldiers are coming, and they will not just finish with you. They will take out your women and your children. What would you want to do when that happens? So feel the crisis of the moment. The people of, the, of Israel, even the soldiers, flee like bugs, seeking shelter when a log or stone is overturned. My kids used to love to do that. Turn that rock over and everything runs to the shadows. It's exactly what the text describes here. They are just, in, if they can find a ditch or a cave or a tree, they're going to run it because they see that army and they're like, we are lost. Again, no, notice the question being posed for next week, right? Who is the God who can redeem us from this slaughter? Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel. He'd been commanded to do specifically this in chapter 10, but the people were fleeing the army was assembling across from him, and his nerves forced his hand. He seeks the blessing of the Lord on his own, not waiting for Samuel. He sins. When Samuel finally arrives, there is no formal greeting. He immediately rebukes Saul for failing to honor the Lord's commands and he makes a serious judgment against Saul. He basically says to Saul, you will not be the king. God would not establish his kingdom upon you. That's all there in verse 14. Before God even moves on to what will happen next and how he responds, our chapter comes to an end. And rightly so, the church knows that before we just get to the action and the way that God redeems his people, he wants us to listen to the rebuke Samuel has for Saul. He wants us to see that when the Lord commands something, he is serious. In the midst of the chariots coming down, the text wants us to think for a few minutes that even when circumstances would seem to say that throw all the rules out the window and fight for yourself. The answer is no, God is still king. So before the text answers the question of what would happen to Israel in this fight and how would they fight without any weapons, it teaches the church two important truths. And here, here's the first. Even when circumstances might suggest otherwise, we must obey the Lord's commands. The center of our text, and I even underlined it for you in your notes, verses 11 through 14 is the thrust of the meaning of this passage for us. 
The center of our text reveals that the primary issue God wants his people to see and understand is obedience matters. When Samuel was late arriving to lead the burnt offering on behalf of Israel as they prepared to go for war, verse 12 is where Saul admits he was forced. He goes, I forced myself. Now that sounds kind of strange in English ears. The Hebrew word means something like this. I was compelled to. He's trying to say, I had no choice. I had to do it. We were, they, they were going to be charging across the field. We're not going to go without the blessing of the Lord. Now, maybe he was even thinking a little bit superstitiously, a, a rebuke that we might all take heed of in our own day, where we can kind of treat God as a superstitious kind of rabbit's foot. That if we quick prayer, little things that God somehow, because otherwise he is clueless about what's happening or isn't providentially guiding all steps anyway. So like a rabbit's foot, we treat God like a rabbit's foot because we got to get a little blessing. Like maybe that's what compelled him. Because he surely didn't think we could fight with no weapons against 30,000 chariots and horses and men without that. So he goes, I felt compelled. And I offered the burnt offering. Saul gives specifically three reasons in verse 11 why he does that. One was the soldiers were scattering. Like, I needed to do something. I needed to align us. I needed to gather every people in the name of God. They were scattering. Notice he wanted to manipulate the situation. By the way, each of these three things speak into how we might be tempted to disobey God for various reasons. He wanted to manipulate the situation. He wanted to get the things that he wanted. Brothers and sisters, how, how true is that of us? How we want something, and we're willing to fudge or bend the rules just a little bit to get what we want because we are compelled by our craving and desire to get what we want. Therefore, God's commands, well, they can be bent just a little bit in just a little bit of a way. The second reason Saul gives in verse 11 is that Samuel didn't come on time. Well, that's an issue of control. We don't just want to get what we want we want to get it in the way that we want it, in the timing that we want it. Where is God? How has he not heard my prayer? That's control. I don't think it would take much sociological data for all of us to realize that we are literally living in a culture that has one of its highest values as control. And we just need to know that that's just in the air we breathe. Whether it's with our bodies or uh, talk about our children, uh, uh, some new metaphors and language have come out for parenting tactics. A couple that I've heard recently, maybe all of you heard of the helicopter parent. Helicopter parent, like they're just hovering around. I remember one of my sons was playing middle school football and it was a cold day. And like literally in the middle of the game, moms are running out with hot chocolate and blankets to cover their football players. And my son looked, I, I'm just, I mean, I, I didn't even bring a blanket. And my son looked at me at, after the game and said, if you had come out to the field, I would have been so mad at you. <laughs> I didn't come out in the field. But, but they, they, they want to control. Uh, two new metaphors. You, you, the helicopter parent you maybe have heard. How about the lawnmower parent? They're trying to clear the path. So they're trying, literally, I know of a student right now whose parent did all his math homework for him. 
Like, how silly was that? It's not you doing their math in 15 years. It's them. But they feel like if we just can clear the path, then they'd have the opportunity that they would need. Well, well, well the, the new version, uh, modified version of the helicopter and the lawnmower is the jackhammer parent. It's not just about clearing the path. It's about knocking down anybody in the way of my kid. This is, this is ruining children whose sociologists and psychologists would say if they have not tasted their own set of conflict and difficulty and turmoil, it will collapse them in life when they do. And the goal is not necessarily to be hovering around them or clearing the path for them or destroying anybody that gets in their way. But as they go through life in their 18 years when they live in your home, you walk beside them to mentor, to coach, to courage, and to love. And for the rest of your life, pray for them. So no, Samuel, or that is Saul, was not acting any different than you and I or most of us in this room would do. He wanted to control the situation. The third reason Saul gives in verse 11 is that the enemy was approaching. So if the first one was manipulation, he wanted to get what he wanted. If the second was control, he wanted to get in the timing that he wanted to. The third is fear. He panicked. Each of these are lenses in our own lives. Because most likely, if you and I are going to go against what God wants, it's because we're trying to manipulate a situation, we're trying to control a situation, or plain and simple, we're just scared. So at least we know the, our own psychology. Like, what is it in us that would tempt us to go beyond? Because we're all going to sign the doctrinal statement and sing, Jesus is Lord. But man... When you're facing the chariots, what will you do? Or when you didn't get what you thought you should get, or you think your own children are going to suffer because of it, what are you willing to do? Well, if you do what Saul does, then you need to hear what Samuel says in verse 13. You have done foolishly. So what can we learn just from this encounter between Saul and and Samuel in the middle of 1 Samuel 13. One is this. Obedience is important to God. Plain and simple. Like We, we rightly live in a Christian context where we want to be high emphasis on grace, and that is good. But don't ever let the grace of the king assume he's not also king. And that's a tough balance that I'll talk about in a minute. But just because the king is gracious doesn't mean he's not king. Obedience is important to God. Samuel's rebuke of Saul is forthright and strong. He says specifically in verse 13, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. And the church hears those words and say, may that not be us. Here's the second thing we can learn from this is obedience is a duty of the Christian and therefore a mark of the Christian. It's a symptom of the Christian. If someone's sick, they have symptoms, right? You can tell they're coughing 
uh, or they're sneezing, or they're stuffed up, or they feel sore, and they're groaning, and you, you see these symptoms that you, you have no doctor's report, you didn't take a blood test, but you see the symptoms, what do you say? Hey, are you sick? You feeling okay? Because you saw symptoms. So when you see somebody submitting themselves to King Jesus and obeying his commands, you're seeing symptoms of a Christian. And if you think that obedience is not part of the great commission and the mission of the church and its life, well, listen again to the passage called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came and said to his disciples, here's his closing statement at the end of his life right before he ascends to heaven. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That, that's king talk. Like, I'm the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You've heard this verse before, Christians? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's history. And we might think of this as an evangelistic text. And in many ways, it could be included in that. Casey's Growth Hour right now is wrestling with that line between evangelism and discipleship. But notice that discipleship involves obeying the commands of Jesus. Like the church should be teaching itself and one another to obey the commands of Jesus. Because he's the king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. At the name of Jesus, even King Charles III will take a knee because he is the rightful king. Now, if that is true, then that means that obedience is a duty and therefore a mark of a Christian. Maybe the last thing we could learn from this obedience topic here in the middle of our text is that obedience. And here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road. Obedience is the gracious balance between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. We are so tempted to kind of pick one of those two Jesuses. We're just tempted. We're t and to be honest, I think because it's more appealing to emphasize Jesus as Savior than it is Jesus as Lord, we even see that a lot in our churches where they love to talk about the grace of Jesus Christ. And they minimize the fact that it's his lordship also which is in view. In fact, if you consider it a trail and you're trying not to fall off either side, there's two sides of the trail we might fall off as we're walking the Christian life. One is simply called legalism. And maybe you've heard that term before. Legalism says, I must be perfectly obedient in order to be a Christian. That's a lie. You can't be. But it also is completely denying that Jesus is Savior. Like, you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can. But there's also something called libertinism. And it says that Jesus was perfectly obedient and therefore satisfies all my Christian responsibilities. Like, if Jesus did it all for me, why would I even need to do any of it? In fact, even if I'm trying to be obedient, am I not taking something that really belonged to Jesus alone? Well, Paul addresses that specifically in Romans. Shall we continue to sin, he says, so that grace may abound? And then the strongest way you can say no in the Greek, he says, absolutely not. 
Libertinism denies that Jesus is Lord. So, so think of each of these as legs of the Christian walk. Your one leg is empowered by the fact that Jesus is Savior, but your other leg is moving you forward because you understand that Jesus is Lord. Both legs are needed to walk appropriately. Any idea that we could somehow do it on our own without Jesus would be mistaken. Paul says in Romans 8, 7, these words, listen to this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Get this, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So literally, Paul's saying, and here's some of this beautiful relationship between the left and right leg of Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. Without Jesus as Savior, you cannot act and respond to Jesus as Lord. Like the two work together. Jesus' obedience not only fulfills the guilt of our disobedience, not only cleanses us from all unrighteousness, but it also extends God's grace for a life that shares in the goodness of God's created design for us in our community. Like literally, Jesus didn't only just kind of declare us not guilty, but he freed us from the shackles of sin so that we could live in obedience. So a Christian who is not striving, get this, a Christian who is not striving to be obedient has actually never tasted true grace. Because it's not just grace from something, from the debt of sin, it's grace to something, the life that God made you to live in righteousness, in obedience, in humility, in submission, in generosity, in hospitality. So let me, Christians, ask you a question that this text directs to each of us. How does this text graciously invite you to heed the commands of your Lord? Is there an area in your life in which you are not obeying God's clear commands? Something involving money, generosity, something involving your neighbor, your co-worker, a relationship, something between you as a husband or a wife with your spouse, something with your kids, your adult kids maybe, something with someone in your church, something in your extended family, something you're doing at work. How about your thought life? The secret places where you go that no one else sees except our Lord. Again, please don't hear this as some kind of legalistic pursuit that's trying to offer you an invitation to earn your salvation. That's not the gospel. See this as an invitation to remove cancer from your body. And who wouldn't want that? Avoiding legalism and libertinism, this text not only warns you to honor God as your king, but it also invites you to align your life to the perfect provision established by the one who is both your savior and your creator. Well, before we end, I wanted to show you one more thing that's just beautiful in this text. Notice the judgment Samuel reveals to Saul that his disobedience was now formally disqualifying him from being God's true king. Imagine those words. 
Look at verses 13 and 14. Again, they're the last two verses underlined in your text. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice three things that those verses say. Number one, God has intended from the beginning to establish a king over all his people. End of verse 13 makes that clear. God intended to establish a king over his people. A second is the kingdom of God will not run through the line of Saul. That's what the beginning of verse 14 says. And the middle of 14, thirdly, says this, God's king will be, quote, a man after his own heart. What does that even mean? Now, in the local context of 1 Samuel, the man the Lord will find will be King David, and you will meet him soon. But in the larger biblical story, not even King David can live up to this. What future king would obey God's commands and truly be a man after his own heart? King Jesus. In fact, that'll be the only time in Scripture where God himself becoming king no longer needs to qualify with the language of prince. Because in that moment, he is the king of kings. In fact, our text today gives us an insightful perspective I want to leave you with. Remember back in verse 3, Saul blew the trumpet in the midst of war to gather all God's people to, kings, to the king? It was a shout of victory. Verse 3 ends, let the Hebrews hear. We have been victorious and we're calling you to gather with the king. Well, there will be another trumpet to sound one day. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's what he says. For the Lord himself, remember Lord in the Bible just means king. For the king will dis- himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. What does that even mean? What's a cry of command? Just simply, whatever you were doing, you're not going to say, hold on, give me a second. Full attention, the king has come. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the king in the air. Well, there will be another trumpet. Let all God's people hear. And there might be enemies at the gate, as Revelation depicts. But when the king comes, the battle is over. And all God's people gather with their king. Now, if that's true in the future, we are invited to live that truth in the present. And to obey King Jesus. Unlike Saul and those that will follow, 
we are invited to obey King Jesus. To know that he, the same king that we are obeying, is not only our sovereign Lord, but simultaneously he is, he is our gracious Savior. And that the life that you were designed to live, even when you feel like you want to manipulate the situation, or control it, or respond out of fear, the good life God designed for his children is actually the life in perfect obedience to the king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which ministers to us. Thank you for the gospel that declares not only your gracious salvation, but also your lordship, your kingship. And help us, whether we feel like we need to manipulate our lives or gather more control or respond out of fear, to not act foolishly, to heed the warning of our forefathers and to know that God's commands are an easy burden and a light yoke. And they are grace and they are true freedom. Help us to see that even when our flesh is tempted to see otherwise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.